Hello there. You are listening to the MCC Sunday Sermon. We are so glad you could join us. We pray that this message will encourage you, build your faith on your journey with God. Enjoy. You know, one of the fun things over the last six months is people have come along to church, and there's been so many people who've come along to church at MCC for the first time, is when people ask, so what kind of church is this? It's always fun to be able to look back at them and say, it's a, it's a Christian one. Because, of course, I know what they're trying to ask. For the most part, when people are asking that question, that they're coming from a church background and they're trying to work out, like, what kind of, what denomination is this? And, and, and what, what kind of style is this? And, and what kind of theological persuasion is this? Because I just can't quite put my, what kind of church is this? It's a Christian one. Right? Because one of the great things about becoming a part of a new church family is not to bring all of my old expectations from the last church I came from, which is easy for me to do. It's a natural thing for me to do that we take into new relationships some of the baggage from our last ones, some of the old expectations about the way things work and, and what to be able to expect. And, and that's important that when we come into a, into a new relationship, but also into a new family, that we actually evaluate it on its face value rather than even on our previous experience. And some people ask, what kind of church is this? Well, what they're really trying to ask is, what box can I put this into so I've got a frame of reference for my understanding? And so what kind of church is this? It's a Christian one. Let, let me explain what I mean. Let me give you an example of this. Sometimes in churches, there can be, for a church's particular style, maybe the box that you try and squeeze it into, a real emphasis on the gifts of the Spirit. And there's room for that. There's, are you looking for a water bottle? There you go. <laughs> on, on the gifts of the Spirit. And the Bible talks about the gifts of the Spirit. There's an emphasis on the gifts of the Spirit. And, and for some churches, that's the real emphasis of their church, on the gifts of the Spirit. Sometimes, though, you wonder there's, a, there's an emphasis on the gifts of the Spirit, but you don't so much see the fruit of the Spirit. And you wonder, by which Spirit are these gifts being operated? Right? Don't. Don't nod too aggressively at that moment. You'll reveal your past church experience, right? Other churches, though, you go, and and there's a real emphasis on the fruit of the Spirit. And and these people are kind and patient and generous, and and they're humble. And there's like, man, these guys, the fruit of the Spirit is so evident. These people are so nice. Man, man, if they just had some power tools, man, what a dynamic church. So they wouldn't have to saw everything by hand. They just get a, few, get a circular saw out, get some power tools involved here, and that would be really dynamic. Why? Because it doesn't need to be either or. What about if it could be both? There is nine gifts of the Holy Spirit, and there's nine fruits of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because they're supposed to be seen together. Wouldn't that be a dynamic church where the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit were both evident? Let me give you another example. Right, which would be more pertinent to actually where we're going today, because some of you are like, where is this going to go now? What makes MCC what it is? Well, one of the things that's true for us is that we want to be a church that is strong when it comes to the Word of God, hungry when it comes to the Word of God, and passionate when it comes to the presence of God. It's not either or, it's both. Right? And so we want to be a church that's hungry when it comes to the Word of God. That, that's why every week when you're in a service, you'll find we always go to the Bible. Right? Because we are a faith with a book. And so we value the Bible. We value dynamic biblical teaching. Not teaching that sort of takes really 
easy things and makes them complicated so we seem smart. No, that takes complicated things and makes them simple so we can apply them to our everyday lives. But we value the Bible. We're not trying to disconnect from the Bible. We're not hosting TED Talks with a few scriptures thrown in to sort of like make it seem like it should apply to God. No, no, no. We, we are hungry when it comes to the Word of God. We're Bible people. And so we value the Word of God. But, but also we're passionate when it comes to the presence of God. And that is why we value worship. But one of my prayers is that we wouldn't simply run a Christian country club in a center. This is not sermonettes for Christianettes, right? That, that actually people would experience God. That, that actually one of our prayers, right, is that, is that when people arrive on any day of the week, mind you, but when they arrive in the car park, that when they open the door and they place their feet on the bitumen, they'd say, man, there's something happening here. I can't explain it, and maybe I don't even have the language to be able to, to, be able to articulate what it is, but there's just there's something happening here. What is that? That's the presence of God. And so we want to be a church that's hungry when it comes to the Word of God. We are Bible people. We value the Word of God, but also but we want to be a church that's passionate about the presence of God, which is why we value worship, which is why over the next three Sundays, I want to take some time, not simply to teach, but to also give us the opportunity to be able to have some extended worship. But because we're people who are passionate about the presence of God. And that is why we value worship. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to look at what is worship. We're going to look at the power of worship. And we're going to look at the passion of worship. But today we're going to start by looking at what actually is worship. And to do that, we're going to go to John chapter 4. If you've got a Bible with you, John chapter 4. It'll be on the screen behind me as well if you don't have a Bible today. John chapter 4 and verse 4, to go to a conversation that Jesus has with a woman at a well about worship. John chapter 4 and verse 4, this is what the Bible says. It says, now he, talking about Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near a plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well and it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into that town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw um, with and the well is deep. Where, Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself and did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go and call your husband and and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say that you have no husband. That The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the one you um, now have is not your husband. Um, what you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worship. She changes the conversation, right? That, got, like, that was an awkward moment. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Notice this, verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. It won't be about a place. 
You Samaritans worship what you do not know, and we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23, yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Verse 26, and Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. What an interesting conversation at a well on a weekday with a woman about worship. That where Jesus says a time is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. We're asking the question today, what is worship? The truth is the Bible is filled with scriptures about praise and about worship. The Old Testament sense the pattern and the principles for our worship. You know, in the Old Testament, there are only two chapters given for all of creation. You remember like the, the, the bang when God opened his mouth and all of creation came into being? The Bible gives us two chapters to be able to describe all of creation, which seems like a pretty monumental event in human history. And yet the Bible gives us over 50 chapters to, to describe the tabernacle. Why? Because the tabernacle was setting a pattern for our worship. The, the, the tabernacle was, was helping us to understand how do we approach a holy God. And so the Bible is filled with scriptures and with patterns and with principles that, that relate to our worship. The, the truth is, for most of us, when we think about worship, we think about what happened at the start of the service. But we think about the three or four songs that we sing in a service. But of course, worship is far more than just that. That is a spillover and an expression of our worship, but it's not merely the sum total of it. But we generally think of praise and worship as, you know, the praise songs are like the fast ones and the worship ones are like the slow songs, but the Bible gives far more description to worship than that. You know, in the Old Testament, there are seven words that the Bible translates, the Hebrew words translated into what we call praise in English. The first of those is the word barak. It's a word that is praise in English, but in Hebrew, barak means reverence. It means expecting a response. It's the one word of praise that actually indicates silence because we're actually listening to hear what God might say. To praise God with reverence and an expectation that he would respond. Another of those Hebrew words that is praise is yada which means to thankfully lift hands and to be reminded that God is on high, to lift thankful hands as yada. Another of those Hebrew words is toda, which is the sacrifice of praise. It is to, with a grateful heart, thank God even before the breakthrough has happened. And so it's a sacrifice of praise because I'm giving thanks even before the breakthrough or the turnaround. Interestingly, the scripture has a place for a For a um, sacrifice of praise, it does not have a place for a sacrifice of worship. That's different. Uh, The the fourth one is zamah, which is strings and instrumental and sung praise. There's shabak, which is shouted praise, 
which is loud and demonstrative. It's like when the lion lifts its head and opens its mouth and roars. And in the same way, uh, Shabbat is that shouted praise, right? When they marched around Jericho on the seventh day and they did it seven times and then Joshua instructed the people, now is the time when you hear the trumpets blast to begin to shout and they shouted Shabbat, shouted praise. The sixth is halah, which is to boast or to celebrate. It's the root word for the word hallelujah, which is to boast about God's goodness. That we don't boast in ourselves or in our ability, but we do boast in Christ. And the seventh is to healer, which is the high praise of God. I'm standing right in the middle of people trying to get these things, right? So I should just move slightly to the side so you can... So you can do that while you're trying to get it. But to healer is the high praise of God. It's the type of praise that God inhabits, that God inhabits the praises that to healer of his people. It's the closest type of praise used in warfare, but also when God wrought a great miracle. And so when we talk about praise, the Hebrews have seven different words to describe what praise is, each giving us a bit of a glimpse into what it is to begin to praise God. Interestingly, there's only one Hebrew word for the word worship. It's shaha, which translates means to bow down or to fall down. It literally means to fall on your face before God. The psalmist in Psalm 29 verse 2 says, Give unto the Lord the glory due his name, shaha the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Worship the Lord, fall on your face, bow down. Be reminded that he is high. And you are not. Be reminded that he is God and that you are not. And so it means to fall on your face before the magnificence of the Lord in the holy place. You're beginning to get a bit of an idea about how much breadth and depth there is when it comes to what the Bible has to share with us about the place and importance of our worship. In the New Testament, the word that's translated as worship is a Greek word called proskanao. It's the dominant New Testament word for the word worship. In fact, 59 of the 67 times worship is mentioned in the New Testament, that is the word that's used. It's the only word that's ever translated always as worship. And proskanao means to prostrate oneself in homage. It also has this kind of further meaning, this idea to sort of kiss the master's hand, which implies a closeness of relationship. And here's the point. From a scriptural point of view, praise is something that can be given from a distance. But worship involves us being up close. Worship involves us being face to face. You can praise God from a distance, but but as you make your way into God's presence, worship is us falling before God and acknowledging his place as Lord and Savior in our life. You know, the English word that we use as worship is actually a combination of two words right? It's a combination of worthy and ship. In other words, worship is describing the worth we give to God, that our worship is more than just what we do on a Sunday. Our praise and our worship is an attitude of our heart. It's to recognize the true worthiness of God and to bow our hearts before him. Jack Hayford in his book, The Reward of Worship, puts it this way. He says, we are summoned to worship with such a dimensional reverence and sensitivity to his, God's glorious presence and power that a new dimension of responsiveness transforms us. 
Such a transformation via worship is an absolute necessity for each believer and each congregation who seeks to serve God's son, Jesus, today. And so if we're to be a church that's hungry when it comes to the word of God, but passionate when it comes to the presence of God, then we must be a church that values worship. And that's not about music, and that's not about becoming contemporary, and that's not about cultural awareness, and that's not about being hip, cool, or with it. And it isn't about misty-eyed intimacy with God, and it isn't about religious ritual or ordinances. What it is about is about the formation of grateful hearts in the presence of God. It's about becoming more aware of God than of ourselves, of our circumstances, or of anything else. It's about the shaping of disciples who know God through being with God and in his presence. It's about the transforming work the Holy Spirit achieves when heartfelt and God-glorifying worship occurs. My prayer for our church is that we would be a worshiping church that we would be a church that values the presence of God, that, that, that is more aware of God than even our own circumstances, that, that's more aware of God than even of our own selves, that we would be far more God-conscious in our own everyday walk and life, that, that a lot of religion is about us pulling our socks up, is it not? You need to do this and do that. And for some of us, maybe that's been our experience of church before, that that church is just a long list of rules and religion will try and tie people in knots, but that's not what the Bible is about. That the religion will try and tie people in knots. You've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to do this. Before you know it, you're like neck deep in doo-doo. All the do's you've got to do. Religion will try and tie people up in knots. But what God actually comes to offer us is relationship. Right? And the heartfelt reaction to the relationship God brings and offers to us is for us to worship. Right? It's not about pulling our socks up and trying to live better. It's about lifting our head up and beholding the goodness of God. And so I want to speak to us this morning on what is worship? Maybe to give us a definition for this in three parts. Here's the first part, that worship is a whole person experience. Worship is a whole person experience. Worship goes well beyond our words. It's an expression of our whole being. That there is nothing I'm withholding from God. Worship is a whole person experience. Some of you remember songs like this, right, that we used to sing in church. Remember this song? All to Jesus I surrender all, to him I freely give, and I will ever love and trust in his presence daily live. And I surrender, that's the part there, right? That's where Jasmine goes, right? All right? <laughs> the, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. That there is no part of myself, there's no part of my life, there's no part of my being that I'm withholding from God. He is fully Lord and Savior of my life. One theologian put it this way, that either Jesus is Lord of all or not Lord at all. Yeah, 
Because if there's parts of our life that we reserve and say, well, you know, this part's for God, but this part's for me, then I can't truly say that he's Lord of all. And nothing brings that more sharply into focus than our worship. Why? Because worship is actually a whole person experience. William Temple, the 98th Archbishop of Canterbury, gave this definition for worship. He says, for worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. I love this. It is the quickening of our conscience by his holiness, the nourishing of our mind with his truth, the purifying of our imagination with his beauty, the opening of our heart to his love, the surrendering of our will to his purpose. And all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless motivation of which our nature is capable and therefore the chief remedy for all the self-centeredness, which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. That worship is a reminder to us that this is a whole person experience, that there is no part of me that is unreservedly given to God. And so I will sing and I will dance even if I can't and I will lift my hand because this is a whole person experience. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, right? He said, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might and with all of your strength and with all, with all of your being. Love the Lord your God. And so worship isn't just something that happens in my innermost being. Worship is something that happens in all of my being. As one conservative Presbyterian writer put it, Reverend Mark D. Roberts, he said, my natural inclination combined with my cultural upbringing, inclines me to think of communicating with God is something that happens mainly inside of a person. It's a matter of thoughts and feelings. Physical expression is unnecessary and, and incidental. Yet throughout the Bible, prayer and worship happen through bodies. Worshippers not only lift their hands, but they also stand and kneel and bow down with faces to the ground and sing and shout. Biblically, worshipping God includes the inner person, but for the most part gets expressed physically. Why? Because worship is a whole person experience. Isn't that what David writes in Psalm 103? Verse 1 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all our iniquities, who heals all our diseases, who redeems our life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The psalmist writes, he says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Why does he write that? Because he needs to remind himself that actually worship is a whole person experience and sometimes you don't feel like it. David had to remind his soul, hey soul, just be reminded, we're worshiping God today. I know you don't feel like it and you're a bit tired, but we are worshiping God today. Why? Because he, he, um, because he forget not all of his benefits. Because he forgives my sins and he heals my diseases and he's a good God and he satisfies my life. And so soul, whether you feel like it or not, we are worshiping God today because this is a whole person experience. Come on, some of you know this to be true, right? That the times in your life when you least feel like praying are generally the times that you most need to. Have you found that to be true? That the times in your life when you least feel like worshiping God are generally the times that you most need to. And so sometimes, like David, right, who's a great worshiper, sometimes you have to remind yourself, hey, soul, we are worshiping the Lord today. He is worthy of all of my praise and all of my worship. 
I remember when I'd first started Bible college, being sort of halfway through the year, and in a Sunday night service in worship, everybody else was into it, and I was not feeling it. I know this doesn't happen to you. It probably only ever happened to me, but maybe you've been in a situation like this. I'd started doing Bible college, and, and I'd assumed, right, I've committed my life to serving God. I'm doing Bible college. Life will start to get a bit simpler. What I found has actually got more complicated. In fact, a whole lot of things were happening in my life at that particular time. And if I was to be really fair, the reason why I wasn't feeling it in worship on that Sunday is because I was a little bit ticked off at God. Because when you commit your way to follow God, you paint a giant target on your life. Certainly for the anointing of God, but for a whole lot of other fiery darts too. Right? And so I'm in worship and everybody else around me, they're into it. I mean, people got their hands lifted. People are singing. Some people near me are like, they look like they're crying. Like they're really, and I'm like, what is going on with me? Like everybody else here is into it. I'm not into it. Why? Because to be honest, I'm a bit discouraged. And I'm a bit deflated. And, and if you've committed your way to serving God, there'll be times that are like that, aren't there? Don't nod too vigorously, right? But you know that's true. And so we get discouraged and we get deflated. And, and I found myself in that exact same position. And so I'm standing there in the middle of worship and everybody else is into it, but, but I'm definitely not into it. And, and right at that, at that moment, it was like, it's hard to describe, except that it was like my heart reached up and grabbed a hold of my mouth without my brain being aware it was about to happen. And so I'm standing there, and as everybody else is in worship, but I'm not feeling it, I simply say, God, I trust you. And it was like my heart had reached up and grabbed my tongue and flapped it about. And my brain was catching up on the memo. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what we're supposed to be doing right now. And it was my soul and my tongue coming together to express something to God that was simple. But the minute I whispered, God, I trust you, it was like something broke in me. It wasn't about anything else that was going on around me. It was about something that was going on in me. And it taught me a valuable lesson about worship. The worship simply isn't us professing things with our mouth or, or even demonstrating things. That, that worship is actually our whole person experience. It, it's where our, our heart and our mouth come together, right? It's where our soul and our spirit come together to lift up and exalt God. And so it's not just something that happens in my innermost being, though that's true. It's something that happens in all of my being because that's the way that God created me. So worship is a whole person experience. Here's the second part. Worship is a whole person experience that's focused entirely on God. Psalm 34 verse 1 says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Worship is a whole person experience, that's true, but it's a whole person experience that is entirely focused on God. That The psalmist says to, to magnify the Lord with me. What does that mean to magnify God? When we magnify God, we're not trying to blow God up to make him bigger. We're simply trying to see him in more vivid detail, right? That's what it means to magnify, that when you take a magnifying glass and you place it over something, you don't make it bigger. You simply are able to see it in more detail than you could see it before. Remember biology class where they take like, you know, a little swab of your mouth and they put a cell on a little piece of glass and they put it underneath the magnifying glass and something you couldn't even see with your natural eye, but once it was magnified, you could see it in vivid detail. 
That's what it means to magnify God. It's not a mind over matter experience where I'm trying to blow God up to be bigger than he really is. He's big enough all by himself. He spoke and the universe came into being. God is big all by himself. He doesn't need me to try and make him any bigger, right? But, but what I need is to begin to see God's goodness in a detail I haven't seen it before. To see God's grace maybe in an element that I haven't seen it before. That, that to worship God is a lot like holding up a diamond. That when you hold it in the light and it begins, the light begins to refract and, and dance and bounce off it, you can begin to see all of these shards of light. That in the same way that when you lift up God and you begin to worship and magnify Him, you begin to see God in a way that you haven't seen Him before. One of the descriptions of worship that's happening in heaven is found in Revelation. It's found in Isaiah as well, but it's also found in Revelation where it says that the angels are about the throne and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That in the the scriptures, whenever a word is repeated, it's not because it's being said three times, it's because it's being emphasized. Like when Jesus said, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven. That, That is an emphasis on Jesus saying, not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. So the word's written twice, right? It's not like Jesus stuttered and the disciples were like, that was so funny. Write it twice. That was funny. No, it's because it's being emphasized. And so in Revelation, the Bible says that the angels are about the throne and they're crying out, holy, not in repetition, but in sheer volume. It's so loud. They're crying out, holy. And the indication of the Bible is that the angels have been doing this since creation. That they've been about the throne, they've been worshiping God, and every time they get up to go and leave, they see an element of God's goodness they haven't seen before, and so again, they bow down and they begin to worship. And then no sooner has that finished, then they get up and they're about to go and leave, and then they see something else about God they haven't seen before, so they bow down and begin to worship again. And they've been doing this since the beginning of creation, since they were very created, but because there's so much to God that when they see his goodness and an element they haven't seen before, it compels them to bow down and begin to worship. And so worship is a whole person experience. Yes, that's true. But it's a whole person experience focused on God. It's magnifying God. Not trying to make him bigger, but beginning to see him in more detail than we've seen him in before. So the psalmist writes and says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. What does that mean to exalt? It means to lift up. It means to look up. Isn't that what the scripture says? That if you'll lift Jesus up, He'll draw all men unto him. Isn't it interesting how when we lift Jesus up, it has a way of pulling us up too? Have you noticed that? That when you begin to lift up and magnify and exalt God, it does something to us. And so where does my help come from? It comes from God. He's above. When the Bible describes God, it doesn't describe him as an ankle-high God, a knee-high God, a shoulder-high God. It describes him as the most high God. There is nothing in all of creation, like our God. There is nothing that could exalt itself above him. He is above all. He's the Lord of lords and he's the King of kings. There's no situation, circumstance, difficulty, discouragement that you and I could face. It might seem big to us, but it seems puny compared to God. Why? Let me give you another example of this, right? The Bible said that this is written by David. Lots of the Psalms are written by David. David's a kid who goes and faces Goliath. You know, when the Bible says that, that David goes to face Goliath, what the Bible actually says happens is he, he gets the five smooth stones from the brook, right? And the Bible says that he runs to face Goliath. That to me is very interesting. Because if the Bible said that David shuffled nervously to go and face Goliath, that would make sense. Because Goliath is a giant and David is a boy. 
If the Bible said that with knees knocking, David went to go and face Goliath, that would make sense. If the Bible said that David reluctantly went out to face Goliath, that would make sense. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that David ran to face Goliath. In my mind's eye, when David does this, he sort of like gets down into the, into the brook and he gets the five smooth stones. And his little pouch, he's got a red piece of material. Like Rambo. Like Rambo, guys. And you can almost hear the soundtrack beginning to play, right? He puts on the, he puts on the piece of material and then he stands up and the Bible says that he runs to face Goliath. Why? Because David realizes, I'm not going to face you in my strength. I'm going to face you with God's backing. I'm not going in my might. I'm going in God's might. And everyone's afraid of you because you're big. But what universes have you created, Goliath? Zero. And so he is able to run at Goliath. Why? Because he's already spent time magnifying and exalting God. And so he's more aware of God's goodness and God's grace and God's size and God's ability than of his own. There's a, there's a story of a gentleman who was trying to complete a round-the-world flying mission solo. This is a number of years ago. And so in a single-engine plane was trying to make and map a course to be able to go around the Earth solo flight mission. Well, in his memoirs of the, of the flights... That there was a particular island that he landed on, and when he landed, they, they'd fueled the plane, and he got back into the cockpit and began to take off to fly to the next area. And when he got there, uh, sorry, sorry, as he was taking off, he began to hear this sound in the plane. It was a really light plane. It was a single-engine plane, and, and he was the, the sole passenger on board, and so he'd become quite familiar with the sounds of the plane. He, he knew what was happening in the plane through the vibrations and the sounds, but he could hear this noise that sounded unfamiliar. It was like the gnawing sound of something being chewed, and he realized that at some point during the refueling of the plane when he'd been out, that, that some animal had jumped into the plane and was now loose in the cabin, and because they tried to make the plane as light as possible, there were exposed wires and instrumentation that were in the plane. And so he realizes there's an animal in this plane that's chewing through wires that I'm going to need, but how on earth am I going to stop it? And so he has this brief moment where he remembers hearing that at certain altitudes, animals pass out. And so he takes the plane into a steep climb. And he just keeps on making the plane go higher and higher and higher until he can't hear the gnawing sound anymore because the animal's passed out. True story. That is what worship is like for us. There's a lot of gnawing sounds that happen in life, aren't there? Come on, there's gnawing sounds. You came to church this morning thinking about some of the gnawing sounds that will be a part of this next week, right? The conversations you need to have and the things that are going on and what's happening in your family and that doctor's appointment you've got coming up. And There's a lot of things that gnaw as white noise in our life. But worship is about exalting God and taking our lives to an altitude where all of those other gnawing sounds just start to disappear. They're just not so loud anymore. They've passed out. Here's the third and final thing. That worship is a whole person experience that's focused entirely on God. But point three, worship changes us. Worship is a whole person experience that's for truth. God doesn't need our worship. God is not insecure. God doesn't need us to tell him how awesome he is to fill some sort of lack of confidence in his own life. He doesn't need our worship. We need to worship. 
It's not so much that worship changes God. It's that worship changes us. And this is the part, as the worship team comes back and as we take some time to be able to worship this morning, this is the part to worship that's important for us to be able to take a moment and stop and acknowledge. Jack Hayford, again, in his book, The Reward of Worship, says this. He says, this focus on the mind's ideas about God. Because sometimes we can reduce worship just down to a theology. We can just reduce it down to like, you know, just reminding ourselves how good God is. Now, this focus on the mind's idea about God rather than the heart's hunger for him overlooks the truth that worship is actually a gift from God to us more than of ours to him. That he's more interested in helping us than we are capable of interpreting him. That worship isn't merely an intellectual exercise. Worship is a life-transforming heart exercise. That's important. Why? Because the heart for you and I, the heart it is a more emotionally motivated center of our human response. You understand, I'm not talking about our doof, 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 doof heart, right? But our soul, our mind, our will, our emotions, our, our spirit, our heart. That the heart is this more emotionally motivated center of our human experience. That, that sometimes we can't even quite put it into words. It's like our brain can't help us out. But we just, you know how you've just, sometimes you've made decisions because you just, you just know. You can't quite put it into words. And there's wisdom, but you just, you know. Well, our heart is a more emotionally motivated center of our human response. It's created by God that way. God's given us emotions and we're not to be ruled by them, but we are supposed to have them. That the heart is governed by more affections than by reason. And so what kind of worship does God prefer from us? Heartfelt worship. Worship that's from our whole being and entirely focused on Him. Why? Because God's not looking for something brilliant. God's looking for something broken. Let me say that to you again. Why does God prefer heartfelt worship? Because He's not looking for something brilliant. He's looking for something broken. Psalm 51 verse 7 says this, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. That David finds himself in this place where he's made the biggest mistake of his life. He's committed adultery and then he's arranged for that woman's husband to be killed in battle and he's been found out. And so he begins to worship God. Psalm 51 is that response. And he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Why? Because God is not looking for something brilliant from us, He's looking for something broken. It's not that our minds are unworthy vehicles to receive divine revelation, but they're too limited to respond to divine invitation. And so worship is God's gift to us for our blessing and benefit. It's a whole person experience entirely focused on Him, but it changes us. It's not so much that He needs it, but we certainly do. Would you stand to your feet this morning? I've asked the team this morning if they would lead us in some worship to be able to finish this service. And I want to ask this morning, as I've talked about what worship is, that this morning that you would take a moment to begin to worship God. If you're somebody who's like, well, I don't usually sing. Well, this morning, I would encourage you to do that. If someone's like, well, I don't, I don't usually close my eyes. I want to encourage you this morning to do that. If you don't know the words, that's okay. Just even right where you are, just begin to say thank you to God.
You might be someone who's like, oh, I don't really like lift my hands or do anything like that. I, I want to encourage you that just even right where you are to, to begin to lift your hands and be reminded it's God who sits on high. Just right across this room, Lord, I just pray this morning. The Lord, by your presence, you begin to move. Lord, as we begin to worship and exalt and magnify you today, in Jesus' name. Can I tell you the truth? I honestly believe that one of the strengths for MCC is going to be heartfelt worship. I think it's one of the things, there's been a sincerity to our worship. It's one of the things that I was so aware of the very first time I ever came along to this church. But I actually think that that it's part of God's plan for this place. That there would be dynamic, heartfelt worship. That even before any person gets up on this stage to say anything, that people would walk in and say, man, there is just, I can't quite explain it. But God is here. That when people leave, they would leave saying, man, I met with God today. That we would be people who are passionate about God's presence and that value worship. There's a bit of a, for Israel in the Old Testament, there's a connection to them with the land. And there's almost this sense that for our church, for some of you who understand this story and for others who will get to know this story, that it feels like there's a bit of a story in that for us too. That there's a story for us and for this land and for this place. That this is a coming home story for this church to be in this center and to be on this land. And one of our prayers for the church is that it would be a place of refreshing for people. That, 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 that it would be a place that's like a well. It would be a place that's like a spring. It would be a place where there's living water that flows. I remember talking to somebody who had just come along to church and bling through this place. And there's something refreshing about it. There's something redeeming about it. My prayer is that that would become the testimony of people who are part of this church. That there is, that there is like a well. There is like a spring. There is like a worship, heartfelt church here. Do you know when they were building the foundations for this building the builders had to stop construction because as they were digging they thought they'd hit the water mains you know this is on springs drive right well that's not by accident this is springs drive we are literally on a natural spring when they're building the foundations for the building the builders stop because they think they've hit the water mains because when they dig so much water comes out under pressure they think they've hit the mains they later realized they didn't hit the mains. There is a natural spring and river that runs underneath this property that has so much water in it that when they hit it, they thought it was the mains. It's under that much pressure. It's like a funny little story about this place. But it kind of feels like it's more than just a funny little story. It kind of feels like God had always intended for this place to be a spring in the community. That God had always intended for this to be a place where people would come and to gather and to be refreshed. And they might have come from a desert place. And they might have come from a place where there's been no water. And they're so desperately dry and thirsty. But they'd come to this place and be refreshed by God. And so the reason why we're teaching this series now is because I actually think this is a strength for us. For each one of us individually, if you're going to be a part of this church, but for us corporately as a church, that this would be a place of refreshing, that this would be a place we're hungry for the Word of God, but passionate when it comes to the presence of God. That's why we value worship. Just with every head bowed and every eye closed before we finish this morning, I want to give just every person who's here a chance to be able to respond to God. Maybe you're here at church. Maybe you've been to church many times. Maybe today's the first time you've ever been here. But I just want to ask you one question before we finish. I want to ask you this morning, are you right with God? I don't mean do you believe in God. 
I don't mean were you christened as a child. I don't mean do you pray sometimes. What I really mean is this. Has there ever been a moment in your life when you stopped and you asked for God's forgiveness and you invited Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life? You might be in this room today and maybe you've been to church many times before. Maybe you'd even describe yourself as a spiritual person. But as you think about your own life, you'd say, do you know what? There's never been a moment like that when I stopped and I asked for God's forgiveness and I invited Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. If that's you, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to lift up your hand. I'm going to see it and acknowledge it. Then you put it down again. But you're saying, Daniel, that's me. Include me in this prayer. I promise you I'm not going to embarrass you, but I do want to know who am I praying with this morning? You'd say, Daniel, that's me. There might be other people who are here this morning and say, do you know what? I once walked with God, but I've walked my own way. I've walked away. But today I need to rededicate my life to God. Again, if that's you, I'm going to ask you just to lift up your hand. I'll see it, acknowledge it. Then you can put it down again. But you're saying, Daniel, that's me. If that's you this morning, right across this auditorium, either you've never said yes to the love and grace of God or today you want to rededicate your life to Him, would you just right now just lift up your hand? Thank you so much. I see your hand. Is there somebody else here this morning? Say, Daniel, that's me. I'm not right with God. But would you pray with me? Would you include me today in this prayer? Somebody else who say, Daniel, that's me. Thank you so much. I see your hand today as well, love. So somebody else here today who'd say, Daniel, that's me. Over here, I see your hands as well, guys. So somebody else here today who'd say, Daniel, that's me. I'm not right with God, but would you pray with me? And would you include me in this prayer? Thank you. I see your hand too. Is there one more person who's here today and maybe you believe in God, but... You've actually never prayed a prayer accepting Him as your Lord and Savior. You'd say, Daniel, that's me. Just before we finish, if that's you, just lift your hand up nice and high. I'll see it. I see your hand. Excellent. Just with everybody who lifts their hands, just while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, can you just, so I didn't miss everybody, can, can you just for one minute, could you just lift your hand up high one more time to just look up at me to make sure I, your hand as well, and you, and here, and just here as well, and you as well at the back there, mate. Fantastic. Here's what we're going to do. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in God, raised him from the dead, that in that moment you shall be saved. The Bible says it's as simple as that. It's as simple as praying a prayer. And so I want to lead you this morning in this prayer. I don't know whether you've ever prayed before, but to make this real easy, I'm going to pray the first part. I'm going to get you to repeat it after me. And this morning, as you believe it in your heart and confess it with your mouth, we're going to believe that's exactly what's going to happen in your life too. Pray this out loud. Pray, dear Jesus. Come on, whole church. Let's all pray this together with those that have lifted their hands. Pray, dear Jesus. I come to you this morning and I realize that I need you. Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of all of my mistakes. Jesus, wash my heart completely clean. Jesus, I thank you that you love me, that you proved it when you died on the cross for my sin. Jesus, from this morning on, I want to live for you. I want to be a Christian. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and change my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God, I pray for each one of these precious people. God, for this gentleman just here and God, for this young lady here and this boy who's at the back and for these two ladies as well. Lord, I pray your hand of blessing upon them. God, I pray even right now they become aware of your forgiveness, that it might even feel like a weight that falls off of their shoulders. God, they become aware of your love towards them. God, it might even feel like a tidal wave that washes over their soul. And that, God, they become increasingly aware that you have great plans and purposes for their life. That, God, this decision they've made today, God, let it be sealed in their hearts. 
God, a reminder of your goodness in their life. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said, amen. 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 Come on, can we put our hands together this morning for those who prayed that prayer? Thank you once again for joining us. Feel free to contact us on our Facebook, our website, and jump on our Instagram at mcc.church. Also, make sure to rate and review as well as share. Finally, from all the team at MCC, have a blessed day. And until next time, bless you.